E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Haley Moore on the show today of Stock and Bones in San Francisco, a group of restaurants in downtown SF. Hello, how are you? Great, thanks. Very nice to have you here today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So what makes you happy? What are the things that you enjoy? Hmm, the things that I enjoy. Wine. Yeah. Well, that's a good answer. <laughs> right. Funny coincidence. Oh my gosh, isn't that crazy? Um, no, people. I think being yeah. around people. Um, I think for me, like the restaurant business is what, you know, restaurants is where it started first. You know, I think um, I started that when I was 15. And so I think... You know, the love of restaurants, the love of hospitality, the love of like genuinely taking care of people um, was kind of first, you know, and then wine and booze and everything else kind of came as a, a second love. Did you get to try on different parts of your personality in, in a restaurant? Were you Absolutely. able to kind of like be somebody else a little bit? No, definitely. I think it's it's fun. I mean, it's a lot easier to interact with people when you have a bottle of wine in your hand, you know, and so to be able to walk up to a table and and say something quick and kind of deliver the punchline and and be gone um, is it's a fun way to it's a fun thing for sure what works for you with different types of tables that's a good question I think it's just um you know being able to read people and being able to see what different people need you but know, is I it think. ever hard to like bro down with bros no um it, it depends I mean I think it's it's definitely a world that um I think people that gravitate towards I should say women that gravitate towards this business tend to be okay with that and pretty good at it to begin with um, for me, you know, when I worked in kitchens, it was like the exact same thing, you know, and it was me wanting to prove that I could carry the heavy stock pot without help or that I could, you know, empty my fryer of grease and clean it out without being disgusted. Um, it's the same thing on the dining room floor. I'm just, you know, we're in prettier outfits, but, um, but not, yeah, I think, that the, yeah, yeah, not as greasy, hopefully. Well, sometimes, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's the same, it's the same rules apply, you know, and for me, it was that appeal to begin with, with wine was, you know, I can, I can do this too. Which is, you know, I don't think it's any harder for women by any means, but it's definitely. But it's harder, at least it was for younger people and you started pretty young. I did. I started um, as a sommelier when I was 23, which was awesome um, at Bacar, which was kind of like the wine restaurant in San Francisco. Definitely in, during the dot-com boom, it was sort of the one that everyone flocked to and had a great, Debbie Zacharias did the wine list there. Um, she's a partner now at the Ferry Plaza Wine Merchant and she's awesome she was able to really curate a, an awesome seller. So I was able to kind of, you know, 
try so many different things. She had, a, I remember she had, I found a full 14 bottles, which in San Francisco is a lot, of uh, a 1983 Brunel Meyer Gruner that the wholesale cost on was $24 a bottle, which is, you know, pretty crazy. DRC, she had a, you know, a nice collection. So I was able to walk into a cellar that was awesome. And I had never tasted any of those things before. I'd never, you know, had Raveneau. I'd never had any of those kind of iconic wines. So it was pretty cool to be able to open some of those bottles and experience them for the first time. How many other people in their 20s were running programs in San Francisco at that time? Not very many, I don't think. You know, I had a lot of really great people that I looked up to and admired, for sure. Um, there were a lot of great sommeliers on the floor at different restaurants at the time. You know, Shelley Lindgren had also come through Bacar, so there was kind of a cool, and then obviously Christy Dufault as well, who ran Quince for a long time. So there's a really great legacy of women who had kind of come through that that restaurant, which was fun. It was fun to be a part of. And you'd been at Akot in the East Bay as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Akote over in Oakland. Oh. <laughs> yes. I know I should have given you the accents. <laughs> but yeah, Akate is awesome. It's a uh, it's it was definitely, you know, I went into that restaurant not knowing anything but the absolute basics. And um Jeff Berlin is really awesome. He's he's one of those people who speaks about wine with like really deep emotion and passion. And um he I hate those guys. They're terrible. I know, they're not exciting at all. Why ruin it for everybody? <laughs> well, like, you know, Dolcetto was like too mainstream for him. So and we had no California wine in California. Um, so people would come in and say, you know, I want Zinfandel. And I'd have to be like, well, I have Plavik Mali from Croatia, which is like a distant relative of Primitivo. And, you know, I mean, it was cool to be able to be a part of people's, you know, you're, you're introducing people to new things every single day because you, they've no one has ever had any of these wines before, especially not then, which was 10 years ago and in Oakland, you know. So, you know, to be able to see people's first experiences with wine like that was pretty cool. And he gave us the language, you know, I mean, before that, I, I didn't really know how to speak very eloquently about wine. I, it was a part of my daily, you know, I'd been working in restaurants for almost 10 years already. So I, well, no, eight years already. So I definitely had some of the language, but, it, you know, he just sort of developed it and ignited the excitement for sure. So East Bay for Akute. Mm-hmm. You like how I rhyme that? Yep. That perfect. I, I thought about the <laughs> rhyming couplets. And then Bacar in San Francisco and how are those two types of areas different because you grew up in the East Bay, you work in downtown San Francisco and a couple of restaurants, three restaurants now. What's the difference between East Bay, Oakland and surrounds and San Francisco when it comes to restaurants? So many things. I mean, Oakland has always been a really cool dining scene. Um, I think that the cost of doing business in Oakland is so much lower that you can, it's allowed for a lot more freedom of expression. So and this is, you know, 10 years ago, there were fewer options. Now, you know, Shelly's open in A16 right down the street from Akote. Stevie and Josiah have Bay Grape down there, which they're doing awesome things for the wine community over by the the lake over there in Lake Merritt area. By the um, library. Totally. I once got my uh, motorcycle helmet stolen from that neighborhood. I think it was, <laughs> now that I think about it, it's probably Josiah who took it. Probably, yeah. He probably like is wearing it right now. It's super hardcore <laughs> when you have a motorcycle and you have to call your mom to come pick you up because <laughs> it's by law that you have to ride it with a helmet and I didn't have my helmet anymore. So even though I still had my motorcycle, because someone had stolen my helmet, I had to call my mother. That's pretty awesome. Super, super masculine. That's great. You could have stolen someone's bike helmet. I'm sure there's plenty of bikes down there. I think I need to give Josiah a call about that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But I would say compared to San Francisco, you know, I mean, the the revenue in San Francisco is just always greater. So I mean, the the types of wine you can sell on the floor in the city is like, you know, it's exponential in terms of price point, in terms of style. 
people in the East Bay have definitely, I, I think they're very well traveled. And so they've been to a lot of these kind of weird esoteric places um, and they want to try weird esoteric wine, but they don't want to spend as much money on it. Whereas in the city, I think, you know, you, you have a lot of collectors, you have a lot of, um, and I was working in, you know, more kind of white tablecloth style restaurants in the city. And so you definitely have people who are willing to spend more money on wine and on food in general. But what about those white tablecloth restaurants in San Francisco? Has there been an evolution of those? Is it the same scene that you saw when you were in your 20s? or No, I mean, I think it's changed a lot. Thankfully, there's still people that are really committed to it, you know, with Cezanne and Benu or I think, you know, two of the best dining experiences I've ever had in my life. And those are, you know, thankfully doing really cool, really amazing things. But, um, you know, I think the trend nationally probably is kind of drifting away from white tablecloth and going to more casual. Thankfully, there are still people that care enough about the art of beautiful fine dining that we're still doing it. But I think people are finding, at least in, in San Francisco, that, you know, there's a lot more money to be made. And the recipe for you know, opening a casual dining restaurant with a smaller wine program with a management team, you know, maybe without a sommelier, but with a beverage person is it's easier. Um, it's definitely, you know, not as expensive, clearly. Um, and you can actually make more money doing it. Because you're not having to replace those fancy chairs and exactly stuff like that. Or have a half a million dollar wine cellar. You know, it's that's a big investment of time and energy. And, um, you know, thankfully they still exist because I think that the fear is that they're going to go away and, um, Hopefully that doesn't ever happen because they're really, they're special and they're important. So where does that leave you? I mean, originally you got into fine dining because you had taken a trip to Paris as a kid and you were into it. And that was probably the grand luxe experience, right? Absolutely. You're running programs in SF, Mm -hmm. but there's a decline in the kind of grand fine dining room. Sure. So what are you up to? Well, I mean, I think transitioning into multiple, you know, running multiple restaurants is something that... I think is going to start happening more in San Francisco um, simply because, you know, the luxury of having a sommelier or a full-time team of sommeliers is uh, it's definitely dwindling. Um, Especially since, I mean, minimum wage is going up to $15 an hour. um, How do you feel about that? You know, I, it makes sense. I think uh, for everyone that's not in the restaurant business, (laughs) Um, because at the end of the day, you know, it means we're paying our servers who are already making great money um, more and we can't pay the guys in the back of the house the wage that they, you know, truly deserve. I mean, they should be making much more than they make. And and I think we, you know, we're already well above that $15 mark for most of them already. But yeah, I think uh, it's, it's definitely going to be a challenge. So I think having multiple restaurants is something that um, may happen down the road more often. So you're in charge of three venues. Yes. In San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And then also overseeing one in Portland. Exactly. And how do those venues differ? They're all actually surprisingly different. Um, we have three owners that are all, I think, pretty pretty genius because uh, the three in the city are all in walking distance. They're about a block away, um, but they have entirely different concepts, feel, guest, which makes it a lot of fun. Obviously, different wine and beverage programs as a result. So uh, Town Hall is kind of our Southern inspired, definitely more um, kind of Cajun sort of influence, a little bit of New Orleans in there, of course. The guests there definitely loves, they love classic wines, classic regions. So it's, you know... I sell a lot of Pinot Noir and Cabernet and Bordeaux and Burgundy, older wine as well, which is fun. But, you know, uh, Salt House is definitely more of the uh, kind of esoteric fun. It's, you know, all of the wines that if I if you were to come to our house, you know, it's what you would find in my cellar. So, you know, Oki Pinti and Foti and Balanced by Paiuse and maybe some Ramonet in, in there as well. So some classics balanced by some fun stuff. I have an orange wine by the glass, which people either love or hate. Um, there's a whole section there's a whole section yeah 
I love orange wine. I think it's fun. Um, and I, you know, there are some that are not necessarily made correctly, but the ones that are really made well and correctly are, they're spot on and they're so great with food. And what about Anchor and Hope? Anchor and Hope is seafood. Um, so, you know, a lot of fun, crisp coastal whites and light bodied fun reds. We have a lot of people that come in from out of town as well. So I added a Cabernet section, um, which of course does not go well with seafood, but at the end of the day, it's the hospitality business. So I'm of the mindset of give the people what they want, um, which is good. And so, you know, it, it's, it sells. And again, it's, they're having a great experience. So you think a lot of the bigger, more traditional California wines, traditional, I mean, the ones that were popular in the nineties are being consumed by tourists. Is, is that what you mean? Or? No, not necessarily. Um, I think there's a trend, you know, definitely. I mean, I, as we've all seen a trend back in California and, you know, we talk about the new California wine, but I think, you know, the new California wine is the old California wine because I grew up there in the 80s and, you know, none of those wines were above 12.5% alcohol. They all aged phenomenally well. You know, my dad bought a lot of great wine from Napa that we're still drinking. Um, I've had wines obviously from the 60s from Napa that's 11.5% alcohol. So I had an interesting conversation with Tim Mandavi once and he was talking about, I asked him, I said, you know, is this a response to the trend, you know, that happened during the dot-com boom where everyone was just wanting big high alcohol wine or, you know, what, what, what happens basically. And he said um, that there was a lot less care given to the vineyard. And so that there was a little bit, people weren't paying as much attention back then to vineyard management. And so it sort of happened at the right time where yes, it was a response to the trend, but there was also this big pull to pay more attention to what was happening in the vineyard. So that's one person's perspective, but um, I found it interesting, you know, that they were able to achieve higher degrees of ripeness because more care was being taken. Well, I mean, he's been around vineyards before, right? He definitely knows what he's talking about. Yeah, I would assume. <laughs> but Anchor and Hope, uh, no, it's also got no booze, right? It doesn't, no. So I have um, beer and wine only. And uh, so we started a little vermouth-based cocktail program over there. And What's that been like? It's fun. You know, I think um, the challenge is always when a guest sits down and like, I want a Manhattan, you know, and I don't have that. So um, I had a guest want a Cosmopolitan the other day. And I'm not, you know, I'm definitely not a, a bartender. I've done it, um, but not in not in beautiful craft cocktail bars and, you know, kind of divey bars in college. So, um, like you know, regular I, people do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I'm definitely not great at putting things together, but, um, I put together just a little like cranberry juice and Dolan Blanc and lime juice for her and she loved it. You know, she was thrilled. So, you know, trying to get creative with the limitations that you're given. Is there a big reception for, or is there any reception for vermouth on its own? I mean, are people into that? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's people like us, you know, but um, I have a whole range. There's, you know, we have six or seven to choose from right now and they can have it neat in a little pretty vintage vermouth glass or they can have it on the rocks with soda or tonic. And yeah, I mean, it's not, it's, you know, not moving as quickly as the Sauvignon Blanc by the glass, but it is, uh, it's definitely being received, which is good to see. And what are some of your other signature programs? At Town Hall, you have a, a program for older wines. I do, yeah. So Aging Gracefully is what it's called. And um, it's sort of inspired, well, it's definitely inspired by trips to New Orleans restaurants as a kid. My my family is down in New Orleans. And, you know, I grew up on the on the West Coast. So we would go down and we'd dine at these, like, old restaurants where it was, like, dimly lit. And they would, like, bring you this, you know, beautiful old book that was, you know, there usually wasn't a sommelier on staff. It was usually just kind of haphazard and you would sort of order by bin number and sometimes they would have what you wanted and sometimes they wouldn't. Most of the time they wouldn't. Um, but, you know, the, the pricing was original. So, you know, you'd be drinking old wine from, you know, the 70s or 80s that was, you know, 40 or $50 a bottle. 
And that was really awesome. I mean, at first, I definitely didn't understand what I was ordering. But you get to a place where you really see the value in that. And so this program is it's just one or two bottles of each. But you know, I have like 66 Lummis um, for 320 right now. So the idea is really, you know, give people that experience. That give seems people, like a good deal. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you, I don't need to make $800 on a bottle of wine in my restaurants. Um, I would rather have someone come in and drink that bottle of wine, actually get to open it and, um, and be a part of that sort of aha moment for them. Because at the end of the day, I mean, if it's great for everyone to have those moments with wine, it's even better if they have them in your restaurant, right? Is that balanced out in terms of profit and loss with the substantial by the glass program? Are you making a little more margin on the? the Absolutely. And I think that's sort of the give and take is to make sure that you, you know, you look at your top sellers and, and you're making great margin on those so that it can afford you the luxury of, you know, my pricing on my champagne is the same. You know, I have practically retail pricing on champagne, Riesling. I actually had a guest in from New York just the other day and he called me out for that. He's like, you have so many great things that are so cheap. And I'm like, that's intentional, (laughs) you know, so. But what are the trends? I mean, it seems like you have three restaurants that are actually close to each other, physically close, but mm-hmm. that have very distinct beverage programs. Yes. A little bit different cuisine, obviously. But what sells, what doesn't sell, what's harder, what's easier? Well, I think people, you know, they want to drink locally when they're in California. Locals like to drink local. They drink a little bit of import as well. But I would say, you know, when people are traveling from outside, they want to drink California wine while in California. That's a very general rule. But I always try, you know, when designing the programs to think about the guest and to think, okay, you know, I want things on all of my lists that if you came in um, or any industry person came in that they would see that was, you know, maybe an older vintage of Gruner that was interesting that is fairly priced um, or, you know, champagne, something along those lines. Um, And I think, you know, definitely domestic wine is still king for us. California Pinot Noir is still king. If I was writing a wine list for Town Hall for the food, you know, it would be Chenin Blanc and Riesling and Champagne and Cru Beaujolais only because it's Southern cuisine and it's got a lot of heat and spice and intensity and a lot of fried food as well. So Champagne, but, um, but you know, our guests want, they want Cabernet. Um, and again, it's, it's, for me, it's more about creating that experience for them and giving people what they're into uh, rather than, you know, trying to only appease the, the sommelier dumb in me. <laughs> the sommelier dumb. The sommelier dumb. <laughs> I know, I just made up a word. (laughs) (laughs) That that one's going to travel, I'm sure. (laughs) I'm sure, for sure. But if you're thinking about the consumer, what the customer wants in San Francisco, what is the customer in San Francisco? It's very diverse, definitely. And when I was in, you know, when I was working at Spruce, which is, you know, a Michelin-starred restaurant, white tablecloth with a huge wine program, um, you know, the guest there was either a special occasion or it was... You know, they were sort of the the creme de la creme of San Francisco. They were the, um, and they're beautiful. I mean, they they the way that they dine is very elegant and the wines that they're into, it's fun. You know, it's a lot of fun to work in a place like that. We have some of that still in my restaurants. We also have tech. We're right in kind of the financial district. So we see a lot of people who, um, you know, the demographic has changed a little bit. You know, it used to be so easy as a sommelier to see the husband and wife or the um, walk in and, you know, you you could tell by what they said that they liked or, you know, by one thing that they, they talked about exactly, you, know, you knew who they were. They identified um, with brands a little more exactly. strongly. And it was easy to, as a sommelier, say, I know exactly what these people are going to be into. Whereas now, you know, the, the billionaire is the guy in jeans and a hoodie and he's 26 and he's drinking a $3 tumor pilsner at the end of the bar. So it's, you know, it's definitely, I think it's more challenging to decipher and trying to get some of those those guys into wine. You know, because I, I think right now that a lot of our sales, at least, are 
liquor and beer is kind of becoming more more dominant. You see that as a trend? It is happening. I mean, I see increases in liquor sales every year um, since I took this position, which was about three years ago, and beer as well. What do customers tell you when you talk to them about that? I mean, why do you think that that might be? I'm not sure. You know, I mean, I think that the craft cocktail movement is still, I mean, it's still important, you know, and people are really into that. The beer scene is is really cool. I mean, it's definitely huge in San Francisco, craft beer. How is it different than wine in San Francisco? Hmm. Question. Because sometimes I think with wine, it's all very pure and you're not supposed to touch anything. Like, oh, it's got to be from the vineyard. Don't do anything. You're (laughs) screwing up the vineyard. Sure. And then with beer, they're like, I don't know. Throw some more hops in it. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Oh, let's make it taste like raspberry. Totally. Just like off the cuff, you know? Well, and there's like a lot of experimentation in the beer world, you know? And and it's definitely a different guest. I mean, they are like, and they're super loyal and super passionate and super excited about it. Um, You know, we do beer by the glass at Anchor. So we'll actually pour even out of a small bottle, but we might, you know, for a $12, six ounce glass of beer and people go for it, you know? So, you know, price point, yes, they're more price conscious, but they still, if it's a cool beer that's highly sought after that they're like, oh, I got to try that, you know, they'll, they'll splurge for a $16 glass or a $12 glass of beer. So it's more about allocated beers. It's not about, I can't drink that much beer. Exactly. You know, and then of course the whole Pliny thing. I mean, I got a keg of Pliny the Younger at one of my restaurants and and I had a line five hours before we opened all the way around the corner down the block. And Is that it's true? Like, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I remember one beer place like put behind the bar a sign that said they didn't have planning. You know, like, no, don't ask us. Don't ask us. No public yeah. restrooms, no <laughs> planning. You know? I have it at two of my restaurants. I get two, I get three cases a week and I sell out. Usually it gets delivered to town hall on Wednesday and it's gone by Thursday afternoon. Do you see anything comparable to that in the wine world? I mean, yes. You know, I think that it's just basic supply and demand. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, with wine, it makes sense, right? Why there's supply and demand because there's one harvest, you know, there's one vintage. That makes a lot of sense to me. But, you know, in the beer world, I think it's it's definitely marketing and it's, you know, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's more power to them, you know? I mean, they've done a great job with that for sure. And But I think a lot of times when I think about San Francisco, because again, I don't go there a lot and I really don't know. When I think about San Francisco and the classic wine restaurants like Rubicon or to some extent RN74, I think of wine sales that were fueled by the tech boom. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like what you're saying is that the tech industry now is less wine focused or sometimes it's less wine focused. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that like RN74 is right around the corner from my restaurant. So I, I spend quite a bit of time there and there's definitely a big chunk of the tech industry that is there and that is drinking um, and that is very excited about collecting wine. Um, so I would hate to generalize and say that, you know, you know, the tech guys aren't as into wine as maybe the, they were in the past. Um, but I do think it's, you know, it's different. It's, it's a lot easier to come in and sit down at the bar and, you know, drink beer or a cocktail, um, rather than dig into the wine list. And how does that differ? Because you also do have an outlet in Portland that you deal with, Mm -hmm. Portland, Oregon. How does that differ from what you see in Portland? Well, Portland is extreme local, which they, you know, in terms of Pinot Noir, for example, like you cannot sell California Pinot Noir in Oregon. Um, it's, quite literally impossible. Chardonnay, they're a little bit more receptive to, but still, you know, there's, you know, Willamette Valley Chardonnay is delicious and they're loyal to that. And as far as Bordeaux varietals go and, and Syrah, you know, they're, they're definitely, they're drinking Washington wines. So, you know, they're Pacific Northwest and they're very loyal to extreme Pacific Northwest. And um, in California, we're much more open, you know, I mean, people 
anytime I'm selling a bottle of Pinot Noir on the floor, you know, if we're going domestic, the first thing I ask is, do you have a preference between California and Oregon? And then it's a conversation. Uh, but yeah, it's extreme, extreme local in, in Portland. So you're saying in Portland, they would rather drink a wine from Canada than from California? Mm, maybe. Possible. <laughs> no. Who are some of the people along your own career path that were mentors for you along the way? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that I definitely respect and admire in the in the industry. I think we're really lucky to have access, you know, to so many people. I think, you know, working events or being out in the world, working food and wine events and getting to kind of, you know, meet people and chat with people and have those learning experiences, you know, maybe outside of your restaurant is, uh, it's a pretty great thing. You know, I've always, Shelly Lindgren is someone I've always like looked up to and admired a lot. Um, she's, I, I'm pretty convinced there's actually three of her and that only one exists in real life. Um, you know, in front of you, because I don't absolutely have no idea how she does everything that she does. Um, but, you know, having restaurants and children and all of these things, I mean, she really balances it well and gracefully. Um, well, the kids have to eat somewhere, right? <laughs> I know, right? Well, and they're awesome. They're like always in the kitchen cooking, you know, I'm like, that's, that's good stuff right there. <laughs> Is that a challenge? Like, hey, how am I supposed to balance this family thing? It's definitely a big, a big thing. Um, I'm lucky to work for people who have kids and who have been in the restaurant business for literally their entire life. And they are really great people to work for, um, the Rosenthal brothers and then Doug Washington. And they're very much about, you know, they say work-life balance and they actually mean it, you know, and to be able to actually watch people like that who've gone through it and who've figured out how to kind of do it all, so to speak, um, it definitely, it makes you realize that it, it can be done. Who are some of the other standout personalities on the wine community? Maybe in San Francisco, maybe not in San Francisco. Yeah. Stood out for you. I think, um, I mean, so many people, but I think Bobby Stuckey too. He's a great one. You know, I think he's one of those people that really brings hospitality to the wine industry in a way that is, you know, he, he gave that TED talk on like service versus hospitality. I don't know if you've seen it, but it I was like. I saw Ted the movie. It was with the swearing bear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is that the same thing you're talking totally. about? Totally. No. <laughs> it's a great movie though. Highly entertaining. Um. But yeah, I mean, I think he's one of those people that he's, you know, I think watching other people and the way that they interact around wine and around other wine professionals can be really educational. And, you know, I worked um, La Palais for the first time and I, I was kind of like standing quiet in the corner, you know, kind of awkward. And I think he just like read the moment and was like, let's go grab a beer, you know? And I was like, oh, thank God, somebody's talking to me, you know? <laughs> like, but it was very, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's moments like that and it's sort of taking moments like that and, and learning through you know, people's actions and people's interactions that are fun about this business. And, you know, it's definitely the mentorship thing has changed, I think, a lot in San Francisco. How um, so? You know, there used to be teams of sommeliers. There used to be led by one person. Um, and there is that still, but it's few and far between. So, you know, maybe we have four or five restaurants where that is the case instead of 25. And so I think you're, you know, as a coming up in the business, you have to kind of seek out mentorship. So, you know, you're working maybe 12 hours a day on the restaurant floor. And then, you know, you're working a food and wine event on the weekend, you know, and I always say it's like, there's so much education that can be had with like a wine glass in one hand and a buffing rag in the other, you know, it's like, to utilize those moments to have conversations with people and to learn is huge. You must have moved from being the young, younger person in the neighborhood, younger person mm -hmm. in the Somia community, to now other people are looking to you as a mentor now, right? Sure. Well, and I've had a lot of those moments and, you know, I, I took over that position at Bacar feeling like, you know, I, it was kind of like young naivete a little bit. I don't think I really knew um, how excited, I mean, I was excited about it for sure, but I don't think I knew how big it was. And um, I was 
it was awesome. But, you know, I have moments all the time and I still have moments all the time where I'm like, how do I know the most in the room? You know, like, how is there not someone who knows more than me? You know, how am I the, the quote unquote, like expert here? You know, because I still have so much more to learn. You know, the wine world. I mean, there's so much there's it's vast, you know, so it's definitely a different frame of mind. But, you know, my world now is pretty cool because I think I'm able to bring people in because it's such a it, it is a relatively demanding job. You know, I mean, I'm looking for people who are wanting to go on to be sommeliers. Um, and so they come in and they work as a beverage manager under me for maybe a year. And I hopefully give them the tools that they need, you know, learning how to read a PL, learning how to run a profitable program, learning how to make great decisions and then sort of set them free into the world to go work for my friends and do a great job, hopefully. What are some of those key great decisions? I mean, I would say, you know, what you're buying, why you're buying it, you know, thinking about your guests first. Um, and for me, profitability, I mean, at the end of the day, like that, it, it's something that I see a lot when I look at other other wine lists too, where, you know, yes, these are beautiful wines, but like, okay, so how is how are the doors still open? Um, and you're valuable when you can make people money at the end of the day. So it has to be a blend between choosing wines that you love and that you have tell a great story and that you pair with the food um, and wines that make money. You know, and I try so hard to say yes to every person that sends an email and says, can we sit down and taste together? You know, but I taste once a week. I bring all the beverage folks in and we um, we sit and we taste together and then we make decisions for the list based upon that. And so there are times where, you know, one of my sommeliers might say, you know, I don't, uh, I like this wine. And, and, you know, if it's not completely flawed, then I'll say, absolutely, let's buy it. Um, let's find a place. If you're going to champion it and sell it, then let's do it, you know. But sort of teaching them how to make those decisions. But, you know, there are moments that you really get to taste. It's really awesome when you discover something totally new, um, which I think is, I don't know if it's happening fewer and further in between. I, I feel like it happens to me more if I'm traveling in Europe. You know, it's things that maybe we don't see on the West Coast. But I know that in California now it can be a challenge, you know, to be in a tasting appointment. And you're tasting a lot of the things that you've seen before and they're just new vintages, which is always still an education. But to discover something completely new is it's becoming less frequent. So how do you build loyalty in the people that are coming up? Well, it's definitely a process, you know, so I think, and certain people are quicker than others, but yeah, I mean, it's something that we've definitely talked about too, where, you know, we're discussing the the buying decisions. Um, But yeah, you definitely at some point have to kind of let it go a little bit, which is, I think the greatest lesson, right? In the restaurant world is how to sort of delegate and let some of those things go. One of the best lessons I learned was at Spruce when Andrew Green, my boss, said, okay, this year we're going to judge you based upon how well the restaurant works in your absence. And I uh, immediately had a panic attack. Um, <laughs> but, you know, learning how to kind of let some of those things go and, and to sort of trust people and, and to kind of bring people up in a respectful way. You know, I mean, that's sort of, that's my goal. But I mean, you must have had people come through, work with you, and then go on to other things. What's it like to let go of them? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I think it's always, it's always challenging, but it's like, I I look at these positions in these restaurants as kind of stepping stones. You know, it's a lot of times I'm hiring people who are, who are looking to step on to being a sommelier, but you know, they, they want to get the management thing under their belt first, which, you know, I tell everyone who's saying, I want to be a sommelier that you're still managing people. So to not to say, I don't want to be a restaurant manager. I want to be a sommelier is not, it's, it doesn't exist, you know? And I would say even as a sommelier, you're in the trenches more with your staff than you are necessarily as a floor manager sometimes. So, you know, you're really with them side by side working as a team so intensely that if you don't know how to manage them correctly, 
um, or in the right way, you know, or how to motivate people or how to get people to want to follow you, you're going to have a really hard time. So learning the management tools is like, it's, it's pretty crucial. In an area where there's so much wine production, what are the relationships like with wine growers in San Francisco? Well, it's great. I mean, it's nice having so many amazing people in our backyard, you know, and for me, I mean, just taking care of those people and, you know, bringing when they come into the restaurant, you know, and and there are people that come in, you know, quite a bit, whether it's for a tasting appointment or for dinner. And I think just, you know, treating them like family is, is sort of the, that's the fun part, you know, it's, and it's great. I mean, I feel like you guys have more access to probably European winemakers is what I would assume. We have definitely closer access to California winemakers, but it's fun. What's lunch like as an idea in San Francisco versus the East Bay versus New York? Do people come in for lunch? Lunch in our restaurants, because we're um, in right in the financial district, we're south of market. But at this point, the financial district is encroaching quickly with new construction. So lunch in our three restaurants is insane. Um, from about 1130 until 230 every day, it's, you know, all hands on deck and running, sprinting and um, it's great. I mean, it's a lot of fun, but it's, it's crazy. Um, the East Bay, I would say is much more quiet. Definitely. You know, you're, you're still some business clients, but it's nothing like, nothing like San Francisco. Do people drink at lunch? They do. And you know, it's funny. We, um, because of the water restrictions, I don't know if you know about this, but we, uh, now can't offer water to our guests. So the hospitality professional in me, um, freaked out the minute I read that, but you know, I don't think anyone's gotten a fine yet, but you can get a $500 fine for actually, uh, unless the guest asks for water, we cannot provide it. So we can't even spiel at the table. Would you care for water? And, and that's a no, no. Um, so does that include bottled water or just tap water? Just tap water. Um, but what's interesting about that is that my non-alcoholic beverage sales, of course, have done much better. Um, but beer and wine, people are ordering a lot more beer and wine, especially at lunch, uh, because they're not being offered water which is uh, pretty crazy. I wouldn't have thought that it would go in that direction, but it's great. (laughs) It's shocking. I feel like the wine industry somehow like engineered this concept. I know, probably. Don't give them any water. There's lots of wine (laughs) around. We'll figure it out. I'm like, this is the way of future for everyone. So (laughs) Craft beer is super popular in San Francisco right now, a place where people can't find other liquids. Yeah, they can't drink water anymore, so they're (laughs) drinking Pilsner. Yeah, it's like... Oh, man, plenty of the liquid, you know? I know, it's hilarious. What's next for you personally? I mean, there's a lot happening, but I also think, you know, regardless of the position, I mean, I would say restaurant years are kind of like dog years, you know? It's like if you work somewhere for four years, you were actually there for like 28. Um, but I think, you know, for me, it's about like really giving purpose, you know? And and I had that moment about a year ago where I was starting to feel like I was in a rut. And I was like, oh, I'm walking in the same circle every day and I'm doing the same things. And I think it's important to remember that in this business, you know, we have, we touch so many people's lives. You know, we have the ability to uh, meet someone on the street, you know, basically in our restaurant and have a quick interaction with them. And if, you know, if we turn them out into the world and they have a great experience and they leave happy and they're nice to someone as a result, I mean, you're impacting your community, right? So I think that's sort of one, one part of it. But, um, you know, the other part of course is being able to turn people out prepared to take on new positions in this, in this you know, in the wine world. So, you know, being able to mentor people quickly and kind of turn them out ready to run their own programs. And that, I mean, that to me means that you're impacting people on a much bigger scale. Um, And you're able to actually kind of give them a little bit more of the the focus and energy that maybe, you know, I didn't have as much in the, the positions that I had. 
Haley Morris, who's having meaningful interactions with people that don't involve offering water. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. It was fun. Haley Moore of Stock and Bones. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.